Mother's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Hello, everyone. <laughs> hope you're having a good day. I hope you are, too. Well, we had we had snow this morning, and then we had sun, yeah. and, and now it's cloudy, and uh, we're, we're getting all the weather in one day. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the snow melted off like... Instantly, Bango, you know? yes, yes. Yeah. I, they were the biggest, <laughs> biggest snowflakes I have ever seen. I swear these snowflakes were an inch and a half across, at least. They oh were huge. Gosh. Yeah, they were huge. So, Caroline, who do we have with us today on Writer's Voices? Well, today we have an, <laughs> a very interesting book. Um, the name of it is Murder in Hatsford. Uh, a, a pigion scorpion mystery. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, good, good. Okay, and um, our author today is Rick. Blyweiss. He, he has a, an interesting, interesting um, background. He's been a successful musician, songwriter, music producer, and record company executive. He has worked as a social acti- activist and journalist, and is currently a publishing executive. Wow. <laughs> I tell you, this this book is something else. Oh, there's two <laughs> mysteries in two mysteries in here, and um, uh, it's a page turner. There is no doubt about it. Welcome well, to Writer's Voices, Rick. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks. <laughs> so, Murder in Haxford is um, a detective mystery, and yes. it's set in England, correct? Yes, correct. In what time period? 1910, the summer of 1910. Okay. An unusually warm summer. <laughs> and what attracts you to writing about this time and place? Well, probably first and foremost is that my entire life I have been a devout reader of Hercule Poirot and Sherlock Holmes. I mean, I kind of started back with the Hardy Boys when I was younger and immediately went to, you know, uh, some of the great mystery masters, including like Ellery Queen and others. But it it was really Agatha Christie and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that totally hooked me, read every story and every book that they wrote and fell in love with uh, that period of England from the mid 1800s to the you know, maybe till 1920 or 25, um, and and just fell in love with that type of a story, you know, a classic whodunit set in England in that era. And there haven't, I don't believe, been that many written since then, other than maybe the pastiches on those characters. And I just said, let's create a new character. And when I said, I said it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just create a new character in that same vein, if you will. And, and I, I've been to England numerous times in my life, had experiences in England, and I just thought it'd be a, a fun thing to write. And did it give you a good excuse to go back to England for research? I wish I could say yes, but no. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it, it didn't, but I, uh, I don't want that to be any way or shape or form taken to mean that I didn't do a ton of, of research because I did. I did way more research than I ever imagined I would 
have to do, but I wanted to get everything right. And there, there is, um, you know, there's fact mixed in with fiction. So I wanted to make sure it was historically accurate, if you will, at the same time I was writing pure fiction and fictional characters. So I did a lot of online research, both to the first book in this series and this one. And what was the title of the first book? Just Pinion Scorpion and the Barbershop Detectives. <laughs> and this one is the hack was Murder in Haxford. Now, right. was the first one set in Haxford as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. Haxford's a fictitious town in the English countryside that I, I created. Um, and yes, it was absolutely set there. And in the first book, you're introduced to Scorpion when he first comes to town. And so the second book takes place the month later after he arrived. Oh, wow. And and um, <laughs> here's the thing that always tickles me about um, these types of books and also TV series. There's a lot of um, detective murder mystery set in England on TV. And, and mom and I like to watch uh, Midsummer Murder Mysteries. It was, you know, 20 some seasons. And I think we're on season seven or something like that. Boy, a lot of people get murdered in these small English towns. <laughs> Actually, you know, if you, if you go back to Murder, She Wrote, a lot of people got murdered in a small little New England. <laughs> that is true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So it's sort of very similar, and you're absolutely right. And I watch many of those, uh, mainly BBC uh, murder mysteries, including Midsummer's and, you know, uh, Death in Paradise and uh, Shakespeare and Hathaway. And, you know, I, I love all of them as well. So th this to me kind of, you know, fit right in, if you will, in a way, except that most of those are contemporary. Right. Well, not all of them, but most are, whereas I'm writing more historical. Right, right. And the, um, the characters like Murder, She Wrote, where they're not police detectives and yet they always seem to be around them where the murders happen you'd after a while wouldn't you start to think hmm this person seems to always be there whenever a murder happens <laughs> maybe they have something to do with it <laughs> yeah I, I think if i recall correctly I, I think i even wrote a couple of lines in the book where the uh, the doctor, Dr. Morgan, uh, who kind of examines the, the bodies and stuff like that, you know, it, it says to Scorpion something akin to, and I'm, I'm not quoting, I'm more paraphrasing, well, you seem to, murder seems to follow you. You know, you mm -hmm. seem to. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, I agree. I, I don't disagree. And certainly with the barbershop detectives, the amateurs, who assist Scorpion in solving the cases and interrogating witnesses and suspects, they're not professional crime solvers. So, you know, they're kind of like, it's the thrill of their life. Wow, I get to do something other than cut hair and shine shoes. <laughs> that that part is so interesting to me, that, that all those characters are involved in this and they all have a different outlook. And, of course, it, you know, they all help. That's the thing. And but it's, it is, it really, it made it really interesting. Well, I'm glad. And, you know, to some degree, what I, when I say I modeled on, that none of my characters are similar to the characters I'm about to mention, but what they have in common is they're colorful, hopefully humorous to some degree, 
and, and interested in what's going on in helping to solve the crimes. But I kind of took inspiration from Robert B. Parker and his Spencer for Hire series um, with um, Hawk, uh, who's, you know, his friend and with, um, I'm, 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 forgetting her name, but uh, his love interest, who was the psychologist or psychiatrist, um, Susan, Susan. Um, and, and so I kind of, I always loved that series too. And so I, I wanted, I just, it naturally came to me to inject the same kinds of quirkiness and humor in, and hopefully into the characters that I'm writing. Wasn't that a TV show back in like the seventies or eighties or something? Yeah, yeah. it absolutely. I mean, yeah. it started obviously as a book series, but yes, it absolutely became one, and it was very successful for many years. Yeah, it's funny. It's like we never get tired of detective series, do we? It's like I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a bunch of them on now, a, a big bunch of them. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's all there is: FBI and FBI and FBI and FBI and FBI. <laughs> I will will recommend one to you that I've fallen in love with, and it's not English. It's Australian, and it's on Acorn Channel, which I don't know. Some people get, some people don't get, but it's called um, My Life is Murder. Ah. And it's uh, it's really a fun uh, series about a – it's funny. I want to talk about my book, but I'm talking about a TV show. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I, it's about a uh, a woman who is a retired police officer, and she is recruited by the local police in Australia to become a consultant. And so she ends up solving these cold case crimes for them. It's really well done. We'll have to check oh. that out. We did watch until it was over Miss um, Fisher's Murder Mysteries, which was another Australian yeah. show. I think yeah, it was on yeah. Acorn, and um, it was set what in the twenties, I think maybe. Yeah, yeah, nineteen yeah, twenties. Sure. Yeah. Uh huh. So that was um, we we loved that show. I, I loved yeah. it not just for the murder mysteries, but for the clothes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And the hair, well, yeah. you, you know, if, if you read the, the either of, or both of the Scorpion books, and I and I do want to say, you don't have to read the first to to understand the second. It is a complete novel in to itself, unto itself. But you find that um, one of the traits of Scorpion is that he is a fastidious dresser in custom made bespoke. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, I noticed you know, that. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know the the series has been optioned by a TV film production company in Europe, and I'm waiting to see what they do with Scorpion. <laughs> oh, very interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, very interesting. Well, that must be exciting that it's been optioned already. Y- yes, it is totally exciting. I'm not going to downplay it for a minute, but I'm well aware that there's a long road between <laughs> optioning and actually being on the little screen. So my fingers are crossed. Right, right. So, Rick, tell us how you went from the, a career in music to writing murder mysteries. Well, I'll, I'll start off by saying that uh, I've written in one shape or form or another most of my life. Um, I I started, I think, when I was about 12 years old, and I wrote and published a sports newspaper, a few editions of it. And then uh, I, I, um, in, 
for my bachelor's degree, I studied filmmaking. So I was writing uh, scripts for my student films. And then even while I was in the music industry, producing records, as, you know, executive in record companies and things like that, I still liked writing and I did nonfiction writing. I wrote some magazine articles, some newspaper articles on music and other things. I had articles in two nonfiction anthologies, one on dating, one on the music industry. Um, and then after I retired from the music industry in 2002, and I moved from New York City to this small rural little area of Ashland, Oregon, um, I started writing columns for a local news magazine. But again, it was all nonfiction. What really drew me into writing novels was when I moved to Ashland, my next door neighbor was a poet and uh, we became friends. And she told me one day early on, uh, she said, you know, I'm in a writing group here called the Ashland Write-On Group. And um, I think you'd like the people who are in the group. I think they'd like you. And um, maybe it'll stir your creative juices to be around other people who are writing. And we're writing memoirs. We're writing fiction. We're writing short stories, novels, poetry, you know. And so I joined the group and it totally got my juices flowing. I did like everybody. I was amazed by the quality of what people were writing. And I started writing fiction. And that's how it started. <laughs> and you hadn't really thought about writing fiction before that. Um I did, but it, w it was not in the context of books. Mm. I, uh, I, I wrote fiction in, in two places and only two places before that. One, I wrote a play when I was probably 15. Uh, it never got produced, but I, I wanted to see what it was like writing a play. And then in the late 60s, um, a bandmate of mine, our guitar player, uh, he and I co-wrote a science fiction rock opera uh, <laughs> that uh, actually almost got produced as a Broadway play and as a film. And it would have been, except we ended up losing out to Evita, which I was okay with in, in retrospect. Uh, Robert Stigwood, who was the uh, man who produced Evita, had our uh, rock opera and Evita, which I don't know if you know, was a rock opera to begin with. Mm -hmm. And um, he could only had the capacity to only produce one of them at the time. And he chose Evita. And then the man who was representing the, the rock opera, our rock opera, found someone else who was going to bankroll it as a Broadway play. And the man died before he put the money up. Aww. So, Aww. <laughs> happens, right? <laughs> Evita, that's the uh, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Is that that's the song cool. from that? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, given that, one of the things that has kind of defined my life um, is chasing the pot of gold at the end of rainbows. I've, I've done that my whole life. <laughs> I, I, it's kind of, I get bored easily. So, you know, I love doing that. So even while I was working in what I'd call regular jobs, I was still doing independent ventures and it, I always found that the chase was more exciting than when I found the pot of gold or, or didn't. And I found the pot of gold sometimes, and I didn't others. But I, I loved the chase. And, and writing, to me, is part of that chase, especially now that I'm older. And it's okay. I'm still chasing another rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, congratulations on getting published. Thank it's you. not often that um, a writer of, you know, at a certain, uh, beyond a certain age is able to, to have a debut novel and now a second novel. So how did you, how were you able to find your publisher? Well, I, I, I'm going to give you an answer to that that's two-part in a way. <laughs> and the first part is, uh, because I am uh, an executive at Blackstone Publishing and have been for, I guess it's uh, 16 years now, um, I have I deal with agents regularly. So I, I have access to agents. I'm not going to deny that for a second. It was very helpful to me. Although I have written query letters and I, I've done the regular, if you will, writer routine. Uh, so it, I'm not a stranger to it. Um, but having a bank of agents that I deal with, um, it was kind of easy to get a, uh, the first few chapters to an agent. But that said, um, when my agent went out with the book, she got offers from multiple publishers. So it, to me, it wasn't just that here's an agent, here's the publisher I work for, let's do a deal. It was, here's an agent. Let's go to every publisher. Let's get multiple offers. And then which one do you want to be with? And I wanted to be with Blackstone. So I'm glad they came to the party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about Blackstone and what your role with them is. Well, my role has, has actually changed and not changed over the years because my role in, in, intrinsically is to um, be the tip of the spear. It has been for new ventures that Blackstone has wanted to go into, and I'll, I'll give you some examples of that as I, I talk about it, but also I do um, a, a lot of specialized acquisitions work. Uh, and when I say specialized, I pretty much specialize in best-selling authors, like I've acquired Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the whole James Clavell catalog, the Gregory McDonald, Fletch, and Flynn catalogs. I've, de I've acquired books by... Um, uh, uh, Catherine Coulter, by Rex Pickett, who wrote Sideways, by uh, by uh, uh, the PC cast, and a host of uh, uh, Dale Brown authors, Leon Uris. I'm forgetting authors. <laughs> so I, deal with, I deal with best-selling authors and their and their catalogs and their estates, and I also deal with brands. I've, I've created imprints with Weird Tales magazine, with Valiant Comics, and others. So that's part of it. But then going back to the tip of the spear. Um, so Blackstone was an audiobook company, has been since 1987, one of the biggest in America, probably one of the biggest in the world. And when we decided in 2014 or 15 that we wanted to get into being a book and ebook publisher as well, I was the one, along with our CEO, who was tasked to get that started and find the first authors and get the whole initiative rolling, and that is exactly what I did. Uh, then when we decided we wanted to expand and have a TV and film division so that we could start placing our books with, for film and TV, I'm the one who went out and found the person that we hired who's running that. It's been very successful. I think he's placed over 80 books that are in development now just in one year. Um, wow. I've <laughs> I've bought companies for Blackstone. I've done partnerships. I introduced Blackstone to Google. I created a, a partnership with the AAA where they were promoting some of our books. So I just sort of have a very 
varied job of, you know, if there's something that needs to be done and it's something I can do, I'm the one that <laughs> goes out and does it and then turns it over. Now, Blackstone's an independent publisher then, right? Yes, yes, sorry. We are founded and owned by a family, the Blacks, Craig and Michelle Black, and they still own the company. Great, great. I I had no idea about the history that it went from being an audiobook producer to quite quite a bit more recently a traditional book publisher. And yeah. um wow, that's really that's quite exciting. We're, we're even a little less traditional than that in this regard that, that we also have our own plant on premises where we manufacture all of our own and most of the industry's audiobooks on CD, but we've also installed our own printing plant and we print our own books. Oh, so we're wow. no longer at the mercy of outside printers and their supply chain problems. Wow. Now, is Murder in Haxford available as an audiobook as well as a printed book? Well, it's going to be available as all of the above, ebook, print book, and audiobook on February 21st. The first book is available in all those formats already, obviously. Do you do um, the reading yourself? I'm, sometimes authors do, usually they don't, but. Um... Heck, heck no. <laughs> uh, first of all, and, and if you have me read anything from this book, you will discover I cannot do accents. And everybody <laughs> in this book speaks with either an English or a French accent. And so, no, there's no way in the world I would do my own reading. Oh. <laughs> well, actually, we would like you to read, and this would be a good time, a good time to do that. Okay. I'd be happy to. Um, I, I guess I need to tee up a little. Okay. Um, and I, I hope once I start reading from the book, I, my voice doesn't fade. Let, let me tee up the scene. Okay, so Opinion Scorpion is the uh, head of police in the town of Haxford in countryside England. And uh, Calvin Brown, these are characters who appear in what I'm going to read, is the owner of Brown's Barbershop. And that's the barbershop where Scorpion and all of the uh, these other uh, amateur detectives solve the crimes, interview the witnesses and the suspects. Uh, Eve is a French um, French descent barber who's also very, very small. He stands on a crate in order to cut hair. Uh, Barnabas is another barber. He's actually large um, and he stutters. Uh, Thomas is a younger shoeshine man in there. And uh, they all do the, uh, the assistance. So this uh, particular uh, passage that I'm going to read is um, actually has to do with the second crime that takes place in the book. So I will read it and you will tell me if my voice is still holding up. Okay. Calvin opened an hour earlier than usual to allow himself time to put all the implements of his trade in good order before anyone else appeared. Stropping his razors, honing his scissors, removing his combs from the disinfecting jars where they had been immersed over the weekend, wiping them dry, cleaning off barber's cakes and sweeping the floor. When Eve, Barnabas, and Thomas arrived, Calvin put on his bowler. I'm off to get the dratted telephone and seek out pressure seating as I said I would. Stand in for me until I return and make certain your areas are as neat as mine. 
I expect I shan't be long, so you might want to get started immediately. Thomas clapped his hands together as Barnabas um, and Eve did a small jig. Calvin walked out the door muttering, if they keep on dancing like that, instead of straightening out their counters, I'm going to be quite knocked. Archie Williams, one of Eve's longtime customers, arrived for a haircut. Calvin nodded to him as they passed and was given a limp wave in response. Eve put on his apron and greeted Williams, who placed his sackcloat and bowler on the coat rack and told Eve, I'm not feeling particularly chipper today. In fact, I haven't felt right for quite a bit now. Hope I don't drift off in your chair. Eve playfully responded, stayed up late doing your painting? Or were you out and about finding new victims for your money lending? Williams unsteadily walked to the barber chair and sat down. I don't conduct money matters on a Sunday. I've no idea why I'm so knackered. I didn't stay up to the wee hours or anything. I'm just walloped. Speaking of a walloped, Barnabas acquired, have you had to give any deadbeats a taste of your meat hooks recently? A few, Williams acknowledged. I had to deal with a pair of really nasty buggers recently. You know Owen Johnson. He threatened me, but I show him he can't do that to Archie Williams. He lost a tooth in the process. I hate doing it, but no one stiffs me. I expect it's part of your job, Thomas opined. Eve set up his crate behind the barber chair as Williams sunk down to it. Guess so. Still, I'd rather people liked me, and not just because I lend them money. I'd much prefer people recognize me for my painting skills than my banknotes. You put a barber cape on Williams and began trimming his hair. You are very skilled with the palette and brush and canvas. I'm always thrilled when I pass by the Gainsborough you duplicated for me. It hangs in a place of honor above my mantle. No one who enters Mamazon is aware it's merely a copy. You're quite talented. And then there's some more banter, and then I will get to um, the very end of this, this segment. Um, Eve's cut William's hair while Thomas was shining his shoes. Within a minute, it was obvious Williams had fallen asleep. His head drooped slightly onto his chest, and his arms fell limply to the sides of the chair. After they had completed their duties, Thomas turned to Eve. Shouldn't we wake him now? Eve agreed. I'll do it, but gently. I wouldn't want him throwing his mitts at me by mistake. Barnabas ribbed Eve. I've just stepped it down from your box, and it won't matter. You'll be below whatever he swings. Eve scowled at Barnabas, shook Army, Ar Archie, and Archie remained asleep. Barnabas nudged Eve aside. Let a real man have at it. He walked over to the chair, grasped William's shoulders, and rocked him back and forth. That should do it. When Barnabas released his grip, William slumped over, tumbled forward out of the chair, and banged his head on the floor tiles. Eve jumped down from his crate and bent over to get a closer look at William's. Not seeing him move, each Eve reached out and took his wrist, felt for a pulse, found none, and exclaimed, Merde! Barnabas squatted until he was crouched the same level as Eve. What is it? You only say that when there's something bad. Eve confirmed Barnabas' concern. Say très moave. Yes, it is very bad. I believe Archie's dead. Thomas bolted up from his stool, his hands trembling from the shock. Should I go get Chief Inspector Scorpion? Barnabas looked up. Yes, and with haste. And that was the start of the second <laughs>
Thank you. And that was Rick Blyweiss reading from Murder in Haxford. So, Rick, I was surprised when the first mystery got solved midway through the book. Yes. Um, is this, um, like, is the other, the first book in the series too? Are there two mysteries to each book or, or, and why, why'd you decide to do it that way? Okay. Actually, there are three mysteries in the first book. Ah. <laughs> so there aren't just two. And there are two and a half mysteries in this book because there, there's the balloonist mystery. There's this mystery of Archie who died. And there's also a minor mystery about a blacksmith who is on his way home from helping a friend birth some twin calves. But I don't explore that one as much as I do the other two mysteries. In the first book, all three mysteries are equally explored. And I think what it comes from is that I, um, I, I am a fan of the short story. And to me, um, it, it's really, I, what I've tried to write are books that hold together with a commonality and a thread that runs through them but where they have more than one murder in them and more than one case to solve and, and almost read like connected short stories. And, and I, it, it, I don't know how intentional it was. I can tell you that the first Scorpion book started as a short story. And when that writing group heard that first short story, they said to me, you've got to write this as a novel. And that's when I started expanding it and said, well, yeah, but I think I'm going to add some other crimes and, you know, make it so that this little town has a lot of stuff going <laughs> on. Uh, I thought that the characters were this thing, like I said, the thing of the barbershop and that they sit around and talk about it. How did you come to do that? How, it, how did you come to use that? Use the barbershop? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, let me start by saying I'm a pantser. Um, I do not plot anything out in advance <laughs> other than maybe I know what crime I want there to be, but I don't necessarily know who did it. I don't know how it's solved, but I may know that I've got a crime, a balloonist in the air, you know, gets shot by an arrow while he's aloft. How in the heck could that have happened? You know, but I don't know anything more than that. And so what I really do is I sit down at my computer keyboard and the book plays out in my head like a movie. And my job oh. is to sit there and capture what I'm seeing play out. And um, and, and then I, I will go back and maybe add red herrings and make sure everything holds together, you know, as I go back, reread and, and edit multiple times. But in the initial pass, I, I'm, I'm not plotting things out. I'm seeing... The book happened. It's, you know, like when I wrote songs, I, I didn't, I, the songs appeared in my head, you know, it was like, they were just there. And I, my job was to sit at the guitar and make sure I, I captured them. It's the same thing with writing. What oh, was the gosh. name of the band you were in? I, I was in a number of different bands. The one that I was in that was probably the biggest that you never heard of <laughs> was, was called the Third <laughs> Avenue L. Um, and uh, we we opened for a lot of acts. In fact, 
Uh, you remember Three Dog Night? Of course I remember Three Dog Night. <laughs> so we, we, we opened for Three Dog Night in front of this huge crowd um, the day that the men first landed on the moon. And Three Dog Night refused to go on and perform until after they could watch the men land because they were supposed <laughs> to go on when the landing was taking place. So my band played a second intro set with our backs <laughs> facing to the audience so we could watch the landing on monitors backstage. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, right? He was. <laughs> well, you know, it was interesting. Oh, when I went backstage the first time and met the guys in Three Dog, um, I was just amazed because I'm I'm also used to a lot of, uh, excuse me for putting it this way, but coke sniffing uh, rock and rollers. And these guys were the absolute antithesis of that. When I walked in, two of them were playing chess with each other. The, another <laughs> one was reading a, a book that was like a thousand pages. And it's like, I'm going, oh, this is different. <laughs> Whoa, they weren't the party animals. No, they weren't. Not at all. <laughs> They were. I didn't see it. Wow. Wow. So, um, I'm curious about the uh, science, the kind of the detective science that's in the book and how you were able to figure out what actually was available at the time um, in 1910 and because uh, blood testing, for example. I, it, it all was research. I mean, I used the library, I used online, and I just spent intensive, exhaustive numbers of hours researching all of that to make sure that I got it as right as I could possibly get. I mean, I even researched Scorpion's name because I had a character, but I didn't have a name for Scorpion. But I in my mind, it popped in what his heritage would be. So then I started researching Arabic last names since his father was Egyptian and Egyptian and Arabic last names. And I started researching first names based on Haiti, where his mother lived and where his mother and father met. And I came up, found names, Pinon and Scorpion, that I liked and liked the way they worked together and <laughs> became Pinion Scorpion. <laughs> it's an unusual name, and it's a memorable name. Yeah. Well, that's what mm -hmm. it was named for. I mean, if you think of Sherlock Holmes, that's not your everyday name either. No, or Hercule Poirot. Right, exactly. <laughs> Poirot. 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 I wanted the third leg of that three-legged stool. <laughs> oh. Well, like you said, chasing the pot of gold, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the first book has done really, really well. It, um, I don't know if you know, but it, it went to number one in five categories on Amazon. It was a uh, um, the uh, PNBA, the Northwest Booksellers Association, Buzz Book of the Year. It was a Publishers Weekly pick. It was a, uh, a, a gosh, a Barnes & Noble pick, an Amazon Editor's Choice pick. I mean, and wow. I've got phenomenal endorsements. I mean, in the new book, This Murder from Hacksford, uh, there are endorsements from uh, Al Roker, Catherine Coulter, uh, uh, Rex Pickett, uh, Andrew Child, who writes Jack Reacher now. I mean, I've really gotten some really good endorsements. I'm, I'm very pleased, you know, what the book does, the book will do, but I'm, I'm pleased with the reception. 
Now, how long did you spend writing the first book? Ten years. And how long did you spend writing the second book? Eleven months. Whoa. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> so what was different the second time around? I had a deadline. <laughs> oh, that would make a difference. <laughs> I mean, in, in the first, when I first started writing Scorpion, I was also writing a sci-fi novel. I was also writing a, a, a magical realism road trip novel. I was writing short stories. And um, so I wrote Scorpion on and off while I was going back and forth writing these other books and, and articles and short stories as well. And really, it, it, it I just didn't have a deadline. It was like, it, you know, so... I finally, after a while, just put my nose to the grindstone and said, okay, I'm going to finish this book. And I'm very glad I did. Uh, and that's when my agent went out with it. But the second book, I was told, we want the second book coming out a year from the first book. So you don't have a lot of time to write it. So I didn't. <laughs> so is there a third book in the works now too? I am writing a third book. And the the main mystery in the third book is about a young female magician who has a trick, an illusion that is so baffling that in the opening scene, Harry Houdini comes to witness her and he can't figure out what she's doing. Whoa. And there's <laughs> oh, murder him that follow her everywhere she performs. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Rick Blyweiss, author of Murder in Haxford. So, <laughs> excuse me. Sure. Um, one of the other things that I imagine required some um, research was hot air ballooning in 1910, and what you know, what was being done, what could be done, and the use of a crossbow. Yes, I'll, I'll address each of them. <laughs> as far as the hot air ballooning goes, um, I ended up contacting balloonist societies uh, to get the history of ballooning correct and found the types of propellants, because in some cases you have hot air, in some cases you had gas, that, that fired them, but it, they happened at different times. So it was through the historical records of balloonist societies that I was able to nail what was actually happening with ballooning and then found the history, you know, like that the first balloons were in France uh, back in the 1800s and um, that there were mistakes made in some of Jules Verne's novels where he dealt with ballooning. Um, and so it was research that did that. As far as the crossbow goes, once when I was in England, I was at a castle as part of a group that was there, and we had all sorts of activities, and one of the activities was crossbow shooting. And I was amazed because I had never shot a crossbow before in my life, and I won that tournament. <laughs> so it kind of like, went, oh, this Kind of cool. So then I started researching crossbows, and it just sort of fit. Mm -hmm. Now, do you mm -hmm. think it's common, like your character did, for people to make their own arrows? Uh, it was, at, at, for sure, at, at various times in history. And 
even today, I'm, I'm sure there are private arrow makers among those who are into archery and, mm-hmm. and you know, sports that use a bow and arrow or a crossbow. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's just there, that, that happens. Another thing that comes up a lot in Murder in Hexford is um, the use of books as references for the detectives to find out more about a subject. And I'm guessing that based on what you've been telling me about the research you did, that you actually found books that would have been available at that time in terms of the titles of the books that you refer to. Oh, ab- absolutely. And I mean, in the first book, one of uh, Sigmund Freud's earliest books plays a pivotal role in one of the crimes. Um, and in Haxford, uh, there are a number of books that, that on very on ballooning and other subjects that, that get involved. And absolutely, I had to go through uh, historical records and know exactly what came out when, what was popular, what you know, I, I even got it down to the month they were released to make sure that if I was writing something that took place in August of 1910, that the book didn't come out in November of 1910. <laughs> Caroline, what are some of the things you enjoyed about Murder in Haxford? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, because I, I was able to ride in a balloon, you know. That's and, right. Uh, so I was, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't know, I just... Uh, it was interesting that there were two different, two different scenarios, two different murder mysteries in in this book, and um, it was, uh, you know, the, the characters like like in the second one, the man was a uh, loan shark, and he was also uh, an artist, and right. the fact the fact that he copied uh, masterpieces and. And the people were. It was hard for them to tell that they were copied. I mean, that's amazing. That's a that must that must be an amazing art to be able to do that. Well, I will tell you to some degree that was based on um, my wife's mother's sister. So I'm not quite sure what that makes her to me, but um, <laughs> my my wife's mother's sister was a phenomenal artist who did just that. And, and she didn't do it to sell them or anything. She just loved being able to reproduce the masters. And, and, and people would walk into her house and go, how can you afford, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and she'd tell them she did it. And so it, and, and I've had many conversations with her. So it, it kind of just fit naturally that that would be something one of my characters would do. I, I, I can't say that my characters are based on real life people. They're not, but I've taken elements of people I know in some cases like that, and I've infused them into some of the characters. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Caroline took her first hot air balloon ride at the age of 82. Whoa, cool. <laughs> it was fun. It was lots of fun. It was. We, no, we I, I... were in visiting the place where um, the area of the country where I grew up and where, of course, because she's my mom, she lived when we were kids that was was Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which is a beautiful area. And we did a, a whole family hot air balloon ride. That's cool. I, and I've been up in a hot air balloon more than once myself. And I, I, I'm afraid of heights. So it was quite an adventure for me, but I made it through. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. You know, I just, yeah. I, I just had an idea for you. If, 
if um, you might want to, you might want to use the Amish community for a mystery sometime. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's interesting you say that because one of the uh, authors that I'm friendly with is Shelley Shepard Gray, who writes uh, Amish mystery stories. Um, it is a whole genre, isn't it? Yeah, she writes uh, Amish romances and and with some mystery, but um, and yeah, it, it it is. I I'm afraid that would just be a huge another research undertaking for me because uh, I know oh, yeah. about the Amish. I've been in Amish country, but I, I can't say I know chapter and verse about them. Um, you know, I'm writing a, a second. Uh, I, I, when I say series, it's a series of short stories uh, for a um, collection of anthologies called Murder, Music, and Mystery. Um, and the first one, first volume in that was Hotel California. And the the hook is that in each of these books, the authors take a song title that's in the album and write a story using the same title, but not about whatever the lyric content is. <laughs> so I, I'm writing about a uh, contemporary New York City hitman, premier hitman, who um, gets a hit put on his life, es- escapes without being killed, and escapes to Hawaii, and it becomes a cat and mouse game of is is the the man sent after him to finish him off going to get him or is he going to get that person? And so I'm, I'm now I, I'm going to have at least three and maybe four stories in the three to four first books in that series. So aside from Scorpion, I'm really concentrating my writing more on that, but I'm also tell you, I'm writing a business book and I'm writing my memoir. So I'm keeping busy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I was wondering like you said, you were working on all these different books at the time you were writing the first Ping, Ping Yon Scorpion book. Right. Did you finish any of those? And why do you think this is the one that that you moved forward with, that you were able to sell and, and um, write more books? Okay, first of all, they, they all are complete novels. They're all finished. Okay. The real answer to your question is they're not as good as Scorpion. Ah. I mean... I, they're not bad, and in fact, I'm working on one right now to try to, up, up, I don't know, edit it, change whatever. Um, and uh, I, I just think that they need to be better to be publishable, and I'm hoping one day they will be, but they're not there yet. You mentioned that you're a pantser and that you you just write it all out, and then you go back and and work on you know putting in other things, you know, other right. clues and so forth that are needed. How extensive is your editing process and how many rounds do you do? Well, it's extremely, uh, extremely extensive. I mean, I will probably start my first looking through the edit when I'm about halfway through the book and I'll go back to the beginning and get that, you know, first half cleaned up. Then I will go back after I'm done with it and I will go back through the entire book and then I will probably do that at least three to five more times before I give it to my agents who then read it and we go through and make edits. <laughs> then it goes to the publisher who puts me together with their editor and then we go through and <laughs> it. So 
it really goes through a lot. I want them to be consistent and I want them to be believable. I mean, I grant you, having a police guy solve crimes in a barber shop, assisted by colorful barbers and, and a bookstore owner and a news reporter, is not necessarily believable. But I've, I, I hope I've written it in a way that people can suspend, you know, reality, if you will, and buy into it. <laughs> Same way, you know, not <laughs> Holmes and Poirot did was believable either. Uh, that is well, certainly that's true. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, man. I had a question and now I've lost it. That does happen. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I was going to ask you, if you write, when in the world do you sleep? You write here in the world, you like writing all these things. <laughs> um, do you have time? Yeah, yeah I do. I, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I, I like to live a healthy lifestyle. I mean, I watch what I eat. I exercise regularly. I try to get sleep. And I am, um, I guess I'm a per- type A personality. So I, when I'm up, I'm up and I'm kind of doing something virtually every minute of when I'm up. But then when yeah. I, don't sleep, I sleep, you know, it's, yeah. it's sort of like you just got to fit your life. Do you have a fixed writing routine? I do not. Um, I, I, when I when I have a deadline, then I do have a fixed writing routine in that I set a weekly word count goal for myself, uh, not daily, not hourly, but weekly um, based on I take how many words I think I'm going to need to write in total or at least what my minimum number of words is. I divide that by how many weeks it would take me to write if I wrote X number of words a week and I come up with, okay, this is how many I'm going to write a week. And I generally hit my word count. When I don't have a deadline, I, uh, I just, I'm, I'm writing something every day, but I could be writing the business book today. I could be writing the third Scorpion tomorrow and I could be writing the memoir the day after. <laughs> now in, in the murders in Hexford, um, the language of the characters is very formal. It's very unlike dialogue, contemporary dialogue. Absolutely. Do you think people really spoke like that then? I, I think that people spoke in a myriad of different ways back then, and I think this was one of them. Mm. And, um, a, a friend of mine is a Brit, and he's, he's older like I'm older, and he has uh, gone through both books and worked with me on the language uh, in order to. And, and yes, I do think, you know, many of the characters use contractions and slang. But Scorpion doesn't. I no, mean, and Thelma I, doesn't. <laughs> I have. So he is very formal, but not all of the characters are. That's true. That's a good point. There's also a lot of detail about the setting, uh, both, um, you know, the town and also like within a building and, and just the kind of very, I, I, it's like the pace of the story is slower than you would normally see in a contemporary novel mm-hmm. too. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm assuming that's also a deliberate choice. And oh, yes. yeah. And tell me why and, and what, what that is meant to convey. I think what it's meant to convey is my my love of the classic whodunit, because many of the classic whodunits were written 
in a slower pace and with more detail than than many of today's uh, books are. I think there today, of course, you have the cozy mysteries, but you also have a lot of thrillers. And the thriller mysteries really are, are very different. They're a different animal, if you will, than what I'm writing. And I really, I just saw in my mind playing out this throwback to the, the books of that era. And so I very deliberately went about crafting it. And there's a lot of detail, as you say, because I wanted people to see the the film I saw playing in my head. You know, it, and there's no way they could see that if I didn't detail what I was seeing. You know, I'm looking at your website and um, you have a couple things. You have a, a cast of characters for each book. Wow, there's a lot of characters in these books. <laughs> there is. <laughs> That's why I did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That would be very helpful. And another thing that I found interesting and I wanted to ask you about was um, a video game. Okay, so <laughs> I um, okay, I worked very closely with for a number of years and became friends with some of the members of was the band Kiss. And I got to be friends with Gene Simmons for a number of years. And, you know, when people think of Kiss, they think of the face paint, they think of, you know, glam, whatever it is they think of. But what many people probably don't know is that Gene is an incredible business mind. I mean, this man is just brilliant when it comes to marketing, business. And I, I learned from him. And one of the things, Gene had um, five uh, business principles that he, that he said he launched KISS with and that businesses should live by. And one of them was, if you want to hit a bullseye, use a bomb, not a bullet. In other words, it's just as easy to do something big and hope for bigger results than to do something smaller and maybe you won't get as big results. So when I first uh, got knew that uh, the first Scorpion book was going to be published, I said, what can I do to create a bomb? And so I did a number of things. And one of them was I commissioned to have a Scorpion video game done, <laughs> created, which is now on the both the... Uh, Google Play and uh, Apple app stores. Um, I did Scorpion t-shirts. I did Scorpion shirts for dogs. Um, <laughs> we did a, we, we, yeah, we, we did a video trailer. Uh, I did an author logo. I, I wrote and record, played oh, and yeah. recorded a Scorpion theme song. Um, I created a web a YouTube web channel and I ran contests. So what I really tried to do was take, uh, you know, in, over the course of my life, I've also marketed a lot of soundtracks to very successful films, including three of the Star Wars films um, and uh, Saturday Night Fever and Flashdance and uh, The Bodyguard and others. This is Spinal Tap. And so I was really familiar with how film companies do transmedia launches of films and get other brand extensions involved. And that's exactly what I tried to do with Scorpion. Do you play your Scorpion video game? 
I have, and I've mastered it. Oh, well, I'm going to have to give that a try. Maybe it's something I maybe it's something I can play with my granddaughter. She thinks that I'm just not very good at video games, which is true. She's ten. She asked me. She said, "Grandma, I don't understand how you can be so good at your job on computers when you can't even play these games." But. <laughs> But, but this is a finely hidden yeah. object game. So it's, it's about my speed. It's yes. pretty, it's, I love those games. So it's pretty simple. Well, Rick, we're out of time. And I oh, just want to thank you so much for being here with us today on Writer's Voices. Rick Blywise, author of Murders in Haxford. Or Murder in Haxford, although it is actually Murders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Caroline, do you have any closing words for us? I do. It's it's from the book, actually. It's in, in chapter 37. And um, Scorpion says, It has always been my belief that you should treat every day of your life, today, for example, the same as you would a goodly amount of money that you unexpectedly received. Enjoy it and spend it wisely. <laughs> Good advice. Good advice. Well, thank you, Rick. We look forward to hearing much more from Pignon Scorpion in years to come and hopefully seeing him on the little screen at some point. Excellent. <laughs> I, I'm with you there. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. This has been an absolute pleasure. You're very welcome. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.